All right, we are live. How are we doing today? Oh, we're doing so good. good. That's good, good, good. Another week, another episode, another round of tech news. Um, yeah, so I found I actually found a few story, a few interesting stories this week. I don't know if you uh, picked up anything, but uh, I got a few. Yeah, what uh, what stands out to you? So there's a new Rails uh, framework. I guess what? Rails is already a framework, but this is like a new like framework on top of a framework. Have you you know which one I'm talking about? No, I have no idea. It's called Bullet Train. Um, you know what? I'm gonna send you the link to this, or I guess you can just type it in the address port address bar bullettrain.co. I think there was um, was there a RailsConf recently? Uh, yeah, I think it was this week, wasn't it? Yeah, because I think, yeah, because I think this was like unveiled during RailsConf. I, I didn't watch the the uh, conference or or whatever where they talked okay. about it. But the idea, as far as I can tell, I mean, this is interesting to me because Rails is like such an old framework, and you don't really see a lot of like new like big new big stuff coming out in the rails ecosystem it's usually like pretty incremental like updates and things but this is like a new it's kind of like what the way i uh, my interpretation of it is it's sort of like uh, scaffolding on steroids like the rail scaffolding on steroids it's kind of like so rails has this reputation of being great for um like prototyping and like early stage startups because you can get the ground running and it's very you can like scaffold out stuff and prototype really quickly and i think this the idea behind this framework is that it sort of takes that to the next level yeah i wonder uh you know the readme looks like this is uh put out by click funnels there oh uh, is it yeah they're uh actually really really interesting company they've been around for uh 15 years, I think. Um, Are they like a uh, analytics kind of kind of company? Uh, they do uh, like, like they're, they actually have a really funny uh, video on their website. Um, basically they, they help the average person um, build a storefront. Oh, okay. Um, they do like marketing automation and sales management and invoicing and like, you know, just it's like for you know one person or very small businesses. Uh, oh, they have a they have a funny um, <laughs> they have a funny like ad on their website. Oh, it's it's I've, I've watched it. It's, it is hilarious. Um, you know, I think they they do a really good job of like you know kind of making it tongue in cheek that like how do you get a business on the internet? And you know, as a software engineer, like. You know, for me, it's like, well, that's going to be like hundreds of hours of work and we need to figure out all these things. And mm -hmm. it's like, oh, yeah. Or, uh, you know, just use Shopify, just use ClickFunnels. Like, hmm. there's something that does all the work for you. So I'm wondering why, yeah, like part of me is wondering, um, just out of curiosity, like how they came to create this framework. I'm wondering if they build a lot of stuff from scratch in Rails for clients yeah. or, or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. Because, um, you know, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, if I was to speculate, uh, 
you know, given that they like spin up a different shop for each, each person, um, you know, I know Shopify's model is like they use, uh, uh, what's their, their templating language? Um, Shopify. Um, yeah, I forget the name of that, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's like, if you're building for a a Shopify, I can't remember the name of it. You, You build like these, they're like these server side rendered templates that kind of define, um, you know, what your like what your extension or what your plugin does. Uh, so right. I assume they just have like a single, a single monolith, uh, maybe a sharded monolith that supports everybody. Um, yeah, I wonder if ClickFunnels maybe like they actually set up a different instance of Rails for each one of their customers, for each one of their customer segments, or something like that. Yeah, you would think. I mean, that's what that would make sense with this with this uh, like bullet train framework they've they've created. I'm just looking at the docs here, and I see they've got authentication, teams, roles, permissioning. Mm-hmm. Um, they got billing with Stripe. I wonder. I wonder. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, new kind of um, let's say like open source billing uh, libraries out now. One of them is. I can't remember the name. It's like, a, it's kind of a new startup. It's like an open source. Uh, so the idea is like you have an, you have this like interface for billing and um, recurring payments and uh, metered payments and things like that. And then you can just plug in whatever uh, payment processor you want. So you're not like locked into Stripe's billing or you're not locked into Braintree. It's sort of like you're moving that logic out of the, um, the payment processor or like the uh, SaaS service that you're using. And that, and that's like handled in these like open source libraries. Um, I wish I could remember, remember the name of the one I'm thinking of, but they have, yeah, they have like a rails. I think it's, I don't know if it's rails specifically or if it's just Ruby, but um, it's kind of nice that you can plug in these different like processors into it. They yeah. got, um, yeah, I was just going to finish. They got like Heroku support, for Heroku, like uh, publishing on Heroku, so internationalization. I know a lot of this stuff you can already do in Rails pretty quickly, but but uh, a lot of it is just like kind of boilerplatey stuff that you're like, okay, I got to do this now. I got to bring in device if I want to do authentication or roll my own thing. And yep. this looks like it's like super streamlined. Yeah, uh, Thoughtbot has a. Um, uh, I don't know if it's you know, the same use case, but it's a, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, I, I should know the name of this, uh, suspenders, which is a, you know, it's, it's a rails, um, you know, it's, it's a repo that's got like a modern, like whatever the up-to-date version of rails is with device with like mm. all of the extra stuff that you need to do in the beginning of a, of a new rails project. Um, is that like a play on bootstrapping? Sort yeah. Of? Yeah. Um, you know, and given the ThoughtBot is a consultancy that, you know, starts up a lot of new rails projects, like it's just, you know, kind of the summoned wisdom from doing this hundreds of times. Um, yeah, it makes sense. This I know, looks um, similar. I've, I've seen some, some similar stuff in the, in the JavaScript ecosystem too, where it's like, it's sort of like, right. um, sort of like a uh uh like a like a cornucopia of different library it's not like one monolithic framework it's just like sort of a collection of 
libraries and framework kind of glued together and what's like scaffolding commands and things. Yeah. The, uh, you know, rails is omakase, right? It's like, there's a zillion conventional decisions that have been made. Uh, and you get the chef's menu and you can customize it however you want, mm -hmm. provided you have enough time to customize it, uh, or, you know, all the options or, you know, um, have, have the time to figure those out. Uh, and what, you know, what I think suspenders does and what uh, bullet train looks like it does is it, you know, it makes a lot of those extra choices for you. And then on top of it, I'm looking at their super scaffolding, which, you know, rails one was amazing in that you could spin up a blog in 15 minutes, you know, the famous DHH demo that yeah, for sure. everybody, you know, is using all the, uh, um, you know, scaffold uh, generators to put together um, controllers and views. Looking at super scaffolding is what they call it. Um, you know, let, let me just like call out a couple things on this list. Okay. So uh, super scaffolding, uh, every time you add a model to your application, it generates a basic CRUD controller with accompanying views it generates a YAML locale file for the views translatable strings. It generates type-specific form fields for each attribute of the model. It generates an API controller and an accompanying entry in the application's API docs. So you get automatic documentation mm, that's API nice. controllers. Uh, it sets up a serializer. It sets up... Um, permissions uh, for multi-tenancy using can-can-can. It adds the model's table view to the show view of its parent. Adds the model's table view to the show view. Oh, OK. Uh, oh, OK. Yeah, that makes sense. So this is like the admin kind of, I guess this would be like the CRUD UI admin kind of interface. You know, I think it's, I think it's even more than that. Like, you know, let's say we have, um, blog articles and then mm -hmm. a blog article has many comments. So this oh, would gotcha. automatically add the table view of comments onto the show view of the article that those comments belong to. Very cool. So this uh, would be like, that sounds like it's taking the 15 minute blog demo and like condensing it to like 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, this is amazing. Um, and then it's got uh, breadcrumbs and navigation. Um, it sets up the appropriate routes for the CRUD controllers and API endpoints. So like, yeah, like there's all of this stuff that 95% of the time is all, uh, you know, it, it's, it, you're going to build things this way. Yeah. And hey, here's a bunch of automated stuff. Customize it if you want, but boom, here's a bunch of freebies. I love it. Yeah, it's like it's like all the stuff that you don't really need to think of. Like there's no um there's no interesting choices really to be made with that stuff. It's just like it's like I said, it's just boilerplate. You know, there's an interesting quote by the um developer of I think it was SimCity. I can't remember the guy's name. But uh, I don't know if you remember his name or not. But uh, no, I want to say Will Wright. But... Yeah, that sounds familiar. And, and forgive me if I if I miss 
attributing this quote, but but the quote is something like, good games are a series of meaningful decisions. Mm. So if your game has decisions, but they're not meaningful, then it's not very fun, right? Um, and I think programming is really the same way. Like, there's a lot of stuff we do in programming that's like, we're not really making meaningful decisions. We're just kind of like doing um, boilerplate or, or whatever. And, I, and I'm all for like eliminating that. But um, I was going to say something else, but I totally forgot what it was. Something about, um, well, it might come back to me, but but um, I, I did find the uh, open source um, billing thing I was thinking of. It's called Lago or Lago, L-A-G-O. And um, it kind of takes like a lot of the logic you would find in like Stripe billing, for example, but like brings that into your app. So like you own the logic for it and then you mm-hmm. just like plug in the dumb payment processor that you, that you want to use. Okay. Very, um, yeah, very cool. I'm just trying to think if I, if I, if, if I see if I can remember what I was going to talk about, but I can't. So um, maybe it'll come back to me while, while we're talking about another, uh, another topic yeah yeah it's it's just hanging out there in the basement somewhere yeah the basement of my brain so in other news um you remember when uh epic took apple to court uh because epic wanted to sell blue diamonds or whatever to to people on ios users and apple said well you have to use our payment processor and we got to take a 30 percent cut and apple was like screw that we're just going to sell directly and epic got banned from the app store and all this stuff um well anyway apple won for the most part except there was like one count i think they lost on which is that uh they have to allow developers to link to like outside payment methods, right? So like if you're a developer, you can't actually like charge people in the app, but you can you can have a link that takes them to a website or whatever to charge. So Apple Apple appealed that. This was a while ago. Um, and that appeal just, that case just finished and they lost it again. So kind of big news. I feel like as a developer, now you can just put a link in your app that just goes to like a website and oh, Apple lost it. Yeah. Apple lost again. It's cause they, yeah. they lost it in the original case and then they lost it in the appeals process. I see. And so uh, my, my understanding before this case, um, you weren't allowed to charge different prices for purchases outside of the app. That's yeah, that's, that's right. Um, I'm trying to remember the details because I, I deal with this because I have an Apple, I have an iOS uh, app. So, so I, I have to kind of have to know these guidelines uh, to, to not get kicked off the app store. But um, it's something like, yeah, you can't charge a different price. And I don't even know. Well, well obviously, they want you to. Um... Right. I guess if you have a cross-platform app, iOS, Android, um, you could theoretically have different prices, and and that's verboten. So verboten. Uh, that's verboten. But um, but yeah, with this, and you couldn't even um, you used to not even be able to hint so much as hint 
even in like an, an email that there was a there was some other like payment option available besides in-app purchases. I don't know how often people got caught doing that, but um, but yeah, that wasn't even allowed before. I don't know if they've up, updated their guidelines as of this ruling, but um, I doubt it. But now you can not only can you mention it, but you can like put a link right in the app that just goes to a different checkout page. Can you make that link look like a payment button? Right, right. Yeah. So that was like, uh, some people were discussing that. Is it, are buttons allowed? You know, like are links allowed? Is it just links? Um, Does the text have to be click here? Yeah. Can it be like an iframe sort of thing or like a web view inside of the app? Um, There's a lot of questions, I think, still. And, but there is some precedence for this. And it's in the Netherlands, actually. Um, yeah, so it's in the Netherlands and they, the ruling was against, was around like dating apps. And so Apple lost that and they, so, so Apple now has to allow, um, these dating apps to, to have like alternative payment methods, like in the app, but Apple found a way around it. And their way around it is like, yeah, you can you can have alternative payment methods, but we're still going to take twenty five percent. So you have to, you know, you have to report your revenue to Apple. Yeah, which is kind of crazy to me. I don't know exactly how that works, but somehow they are um, they are entitled to twenty five percent of your of the revenue made in the app that's on the app store. It's like a licensing kind of thing, like a licensing fee, I guess. Yeah, that's, you know, I don't know. I I would just hope that that gets appealed because, you know, like I get it. If I'm selling a a game through GameStop, like, yeah, GameStop gets a cut because they're helping me sell the game. Well, also... Well, just to, sorry to interrupt, but also like Sony gets a cut too. Like if you if it's a PlayStation game, right? Yeah, they, they take thirty percent. Yeah, they get that licensing fee, all that stuff. But I, I don't know. It maybe it's not quite the same analogy because you know Apple is doing the distribution lift. Um, yeah, but True. it's like oh yeah. Also, by the way, um, you have to use our um, our GUI library. We're mm-hmm. not going to allow you to use any other GUI libraries. Um, oh, yeah. By the way, also, you have to say, thank you, Apple. You're the greatest in all your apps uh, and on your website. Right. Also, by the way, you're not allowed to have any fruit on your website. Like, how far can that contract law go? Um, yeah. You know, especially yeah. given the, the monopoly status. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that was definitely an argument. I mean, that they Epic made that argument and lost, like, apparently. But, but uh, I mean, the, I think the argument was Apple has a monopoly on iOS apps, something like that. Like, it's not, it's not. They don't have a monopoly on smartphone apps, obviously, because Android exists, and in some alternate reality, Windows Mobile exists. But, um, but I, guess, I think the argument was they have a monopoly on iOS apps specifically. 
Yeah, yeah, they're trying to narrow it down. Well, it's and it's only it's not even just iOS apps. It's apps in the the iPhone store versus apps in the iPad store. You know, they're trying to. I don't know. I mean, at some point, it's just like a bunch of lawyers like shaking hands. So I don't I don't pretend that any of this has any rooting in reality whatsoever. Yeah, like it's to me, it it made sense once upon a time when it was literally an app store where you would go in and buy apps, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, every every app had a price, a dollar, five dollars. That to, that to me is when it made sense because it was like it was curated to an extent uh, they were facilitating the purchases, the discovery. It was like, you know, the, your GameStop analogy. It was it was much more akin to that at the time. Now apps are, they're all free, free to start or free to use, uh, not free to use, but they're, they're free essentially. Um, and then you like subscribe to them usually or, you know, you buy extra stuff in the apps, things like that. Yeah. And... That to me is like okay. That the rationale is starting to break down a little bit. It's not like all I'm like. I'm not even discovering apps in the app store anymore, right? Like I used to go in the app store and find cool new apps. I don't do that anymore. I just I hear about an app or or whatever. You know, it's like TikTok, right? It's like these apps just come on the scene and blow up, and and you just go. You have to go through the app store to get them, but just by a just by a uh, matter of uh matter of course it's not even really there's no purpose to it anymore in my opinion um so yeah it it doesn't really make sense to me anymore but um but if i had to guess i would say apple is going to pull the same thing they did in the netherlands where it's like oh yeah sure you can link to outside payment (laughs) payment uh, methods but we're still going to take 25 percent or whatever the cut is go apple you know, first company to 10 trillion. Here we go. Here we go. Um, yeah, so that's, um, so anyway, it's just kind of interesting to me because I have an app on the App Store and it's really annoying to uh, to deal with that. What is, okay, what is this? That's, I don't, oh, oh, here's a story I found. Um, you ever heard of the, the uh, game RuneScape? RuneScape. It sounds really familiar. Maybe like early two thousands. Yeah, it's it's like this old school. Um, very, the graphics are very primitive. I think it ran in the browser originally. It's like this old school MMORPG, and um, so so people still play it, of course. And people are creating characters in the on, on the in the game that are. They, I mean, they look. I mean, they're obvious. They're, they are player characters, quote unquote, but they're being run and driven by Chat GPT or GPT four or whatever. And so you have these player characters that are kind of acting like NPCs, and they're chatting with other player characters. And there's, so there's all these like, I mean, bots have been around in MMOs forever, right? But sure. they've always been very. Um, very focused on specific tasks like I'm uh, doing, I'm going to create a bot that chops down trees to get lumber or whatever. This is a different kind of bot. It's like, it's, it's driven. It's, it can do things in the world, but it can also interact with other players and talk to them and things. And it's very apparently difficult to tell like who's a real player and who's uh, chat GPT. 
and some of the prompts, you know, like people will give different prompts to create different personalities for the character. So it's not like all the GPT player characters act and talk the same. They have different personalities because of the prompting that, 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 uh, the different types of prompting that's being used. And, um, yeah, I know this is an AI, this is an AI story and we kind of try not to talk too much about AI because there's just so much of it going on right now, but, uh, it's kind of interesting to me because I wonder if, um, like game studios will start to use this as like a way to seed their online game with like fake, fake, uh, GPT powered players. Fake. Yeah. Yeah. Is it's, you know, bots, you know, generally you can figure out that a bot is a bot pretty quickly. It's just doing something yeah. really dumb, like, uh, short, short tangent. Um, in, in an earlier life, I played poker online for money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came across, I think I was playing like, or maybe it was like one, two limit. Um, and I came across this table had one person at it. And I don't know, I didn't make my money off of like heads up. I made my money off shorthanded six people. Um, but there was this table, it was a six, six, uh, person table. And there was just one person sitting there and I figure, ah, you know, maybe I'll sit down and just go AFK and, you know, wait for more people to show up, right? Two mm-hmm. people sit at the table, maybe we'll get a third and a fourth. And, and um, you know, I, I had to post a blind. Um, so I'm like, all right, fine, I'll play this hand. And so I just raised and they folded. I'm like, cool, I just made my blind. Now I can, now I can, um, you know, go AFK. But for whatever reason, I, I played another hand and, you know, they just, they just called and then I raised and then they folded. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, Oh, cool. I just made like, like three bucks here. This is great. And so yeah. I just repeated that process and managed to pull, I don't know, maybe it was like two or 300 bucks off this bot that <laughs> was, you know, it was built for shorthand and it wasn't getting hands that were higher enough quality. And so its strategy was just fold. Huh? So it was just like, it just wasn't programmed well enough. It was, it was designed for a, a table with six people on it. And oh, that's where, that's they, where it went wrong. Yeah. They forgot to tell it to leave the table after everybody else left. So, um, Hey, yeah. I mean, that's like, that's like, to me, I think, I feel like I wonder, I am curious, like how much money that bot was able to pull in, but I, I feel like that kind of oversight could, it could have been a lot worse, but you know how container ships or like, uh, I don't know if container ship or whatever company does the shipping, um, they factor in like losing 10% of the uh, product just from the containers, like falling overboard into the sea or whatever. Right. Right. The standard like law. That's probably to me, that seems like, Hey, this, this bot is just like raking in so much dough from normal operation. You lose two or $300 from this bug. It's not a big deal. But uh, what, so did the bot eventually leave or did you leave? Um, I emptied it out and, you know, like my, I don't know, this is, this is a while back, but I feel like I, maybe I encountered it a second time. I don't think it rebought after I emptied it out, but it, you know, Mm -hmm. got down to whatever it was starting at 200 bucks or something. And then it got down to zero and, uh, and then it, I think it just left the table at that point. Either it's that or I, I got 
yeah, costly mistake. Well, I I wonder. Um, yeah, was there like a chat room in those games, or it was just yeah, it was just straight yeah, there's a little box. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I used to play poker online too. I don't know if um, anybody still does that or not. I, I would imagine so. It's probably all done online now. But um, yeah, I wonder how good. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I wonder how good um, ChatGPT would be at poker, or if it could even play poker. Could yeah. a large language model do something like that? I mean, I guess if you trained it on enough hand histories, like it might. You know, I'm. I'm just gonna say like. Probably not, and the reason being that it's a, uh, it's not just like here's the input, um, you know, make your decision. There's a lot yeah. of uh, time series forecasting involved of mm -hmm. looking at histories of like, is this a tight player? Is this a loose player? Um, oh right, right. Yeah. All of that, or like, how are they reacting to different players? Or I I'm not saying like there are. You know, I think they built a heads up bot that's like game theory perfect that beats, you know, basically every human. Um, not saying that can't be built, but just, you know, can you do that with simple embeddings in, in chat GPT right now or GPT-4? Like, probably not. Could you beat the average, though? Like the average player on whatever, whatever online like poker game you choose to uh, infiltrate? Yeah. Because yeah. if you could beat the average, then... There is a, like, it's like a world championship of poker bots tournament. Um, they used to be back in maybe, like, 20, maybe 2013-ish. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's still around. So, uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, uh, just to, just to circle back around to this original story, it's, I'm kind of waiting for, like... You know, there's there's a, a genre of video games like adventure games or RPGs or whatever, where you have like story and NPCs, and you're talking to the NPCs. I'm just waiting for somebody to come out with a game where all the NPCs are like GPT level AI, and they're creating mm -hmm. entire storylines that are like kind of like um, if you've ever read any of the um, any of the stories that come out of Dwarf Fortress. It's this, like it's this like insanely complex like text-based uh, simulation game, and there's like all, all these like different rules and engines in the game, and and um, through that complexity, or through through all the uh, different interacting um, systems and rules, like these really interesting and comp and like crazy stories emerge. Of course, you have to put some when you're retelling the stories. You got to put some flavor into it because it's it's a simulation, right? So you just see like the raw details and the raw numbers. But um, that's the kind of thing I'm expecting, right? With like video games in the future, where if the AI is like creating the scenarios and the stories, it's like every playthrough is unique. Yeah, kind of like uh, kind of like Diablo, but instead of the maps being uh, procedurally generated, the stories are. Yeah, there's like a rough outline of, of the story, but, um, you know, maybe maybe there are more nooks and crannies that uh, you can explore side quests or, or whatnot, have the NPCs, you know, react to like goofy stuff you're doing in the game. Yeah, actually, you know, people have been using uh, ChatGPT to Dungeon Master for uh, Dungeons and Dragons type games. 
tabletop games. So you just kind of like take that, you know, like the early RPG video games were kind of like based on Dungeons and Dragons. So you kind of like see what's going on in the tabletop world with uh, AI and you kind of like translate that into a video game somehow, you know, add some menus or whatever, make it more video gamey. That's the kind of thing I'm interested in. I like the intersection of video games and AI. Now, before we um, have another story. I wanted to talk about, but uh, yeah. I didn't want to like kind of just run through all my stories. Did you have one that you this week that you? I think you mentioned you had something you might want to talk about, but yeah, this this like like please help me understand this. Okay, uh, are you familiar with Pinecone, the uh, the vector database hosting company? I am not actually. I don't know if I've ever heard of them. Okay. Uh, oh, Pinecone vector database. Uh, yeah, it's like, well, I think I might have heard of it, but it's used for like AI stuff, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, so effectively the way that these LLMs work is that they, you know, there's a, uh, they create an embedding for whatever text that you, you give to them. And then they query through, um, you know, existing embeddings and return results. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's also like actually shipping stuff all the way through the model and doing training and getting output. But in general, like, you know, they have a, a way of compressing the entire internet into, you know, whatever, 70 gigabytes or so of embeddings. Um, and then they just search through the embeddings and find the closest, the closest result to whatever you're, you're asking. Okay. And so what those look like, uh, it's just an array of floats. So, um, for instance, if you're using, uh, working on a project this week around this, uh, if you're using OpenAI's ADA model, which is their, it's like the cheapest and the fastest model, um, it supports 1,536 um, tokens. And coincidentally, or not, the vector for any um, any piece of text that you pass in is going to have 1,536 um, floats. That's the vector. It's an array of floats. So um, to, to get, you know, a similarity, like if you're looking for something that's similar to something else, um, you take the vector for the thing that you're looking for. So I don't know, like you could take the word dog, get the vector for dog, which is going to be an array of 1,536 floats. And then you query the vector database and you say, Hey, um, give me the closest vector to, to this one. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's a 2d vector, it's pretty easy, right? It's just Cartesian coordinates and, there's a dot with an XY, uh, you know, XY coordinate, and you're looking for the dot that's closest to that dot, and you return it. And it's a, you know, it's like a K nearest neighbor problem, and it's, I think it's linear time complexity. Um, I think there's like indexing ways to make it quicker in some cases. Um, with higher dimensional spaces, it's the same thing, except we're just, you know, we're looking for the closest thing in. in 1500 dimensions. So 
Uh, storing those requires a database to support vector encodings. Um, Pinecone was, I guess they they were kind of an early um, an early vector database company, and they allow you to upload your embeddings, upload your vectors, and query them for you know similarities. And they've got you know their API doesn't look super impressive. Um, you know you can get. Uh, you can get things that are close to other things. And when I say it doesn't look super impressive, like you can do this entire thing with a Postgres extension called PG vector. Okay. Vectors in Postgres, you can query them. Uh, it's pretty quick. There's a bunch of people working on additional features to bring it up to like parity and beyond with what my understanding of what Pinecone does is. Um, so Pinecone effectively like, Maybe they did it first and PG Vector's catching up, but they just got $100 million in Series B funding to um, mm. Horowitz, and their valuation is at $750 million. So it's like, I, I just, I, I can't fathom how something that does what Postgres can do for free, how that company could be valued, you know, almost 10 figures. It, it just there has to, to be, be there has to be some like technological advantage, right? I mean, there is this concept of like fast first, which is like, okay, the first big player on the scene kind of has like a huge advantage. Um, you see this with like browsers, for example, it doesn't matter if there, a better browser comes along. Uh, you're not going to dethrone IE6 for a very long time. Right. Um, so that, that could be part of it. I mean, it could be a big part of it, but, um, but yeah, there, there has to be, <laughs> I, I, I would imagine there has to be some kind of like technological innovation that Pinecone was able to, I mean, I, I assume it's closed source. Otherwise you could just kind of take, well, I don't know what the, yeah, I guess it would depend on the licensing, but, but, um, I did read about this actually. I did read that they raised some money. I, I read some stuff about the different options in the um, vector database world and the crazy valuations that they're getting. Do you know if it's open source? Uh, I don't think it is. I think they, you know, they've got an API that they like let you. It's kind of like it's kind of like Firebase for vectors with. Mm. Um, you know, like their concepts include collections, indexes, uh, embeddings, projects, organizations. I guess they've got multi-tenancy support, um, so you can keep vectors separated. Um, it could, it could also be like uh, kind of like a Heroku versus like VPS kind of thing, right? Where it's like. Oh yeah, why use Heroku? Why pay all this money to Heroku when you can just like spin up a VPS and provision it and do all the right. work yourself? Uh, or you could you or you could just like sign up for Heroku or Pinecone and have right. all that stuff done for you. That could be it too. I've never used it, so it's, I can't really say for sure. Yeah. On that note, uh, Heroku currently does not support uh, PG Vector for for Postgres, so. Hmm. 
you well, know, that's pretty cutting edge, isn't it? DevOps resistance that uh, you know makes this an attractive solution. Yeah, for sure. I it's a pretty specialized. Um, I mean, when I think of Heroku, I think that's people that's like uh, or or companies they're doing um, like basically, you know, basically like SaaS products. And when I think of Pinecone, I'm thinking, okay, these are these are um, companies that where AI is like the core, like a pretty core component of whatever product they're developing. Whereas like somebody that's using Heroku, yeah, maybe they might have some AI features, but they're outsourcing it to OpenAI or something or somebody like that. Because like Heroku to me is more geared towards like the SaaS, uh, like the standard like SaaS company. Yeah, it's, it's, well, you know, that early lift for especially smaller companies that don't have a lot of DevOps that have like a very simple basic use case um, where, you know, maybe five to 10% of the employees at the company are engineers. Like they're not a SaaS. They're, you know, just a company that has to, has to have some engineers around to, to build stuff. Yeah. Do you, do you know like what other competitors there are in this uh, vector database space? Uh, I have absolutely. So the only thing I know there's, um, there's a Facebook um, vector database called FISS, F-A-I-S-S, which uh, I believe is open source. So it's a, like you host your own, um, your own vectors. Um, and I don't know if FICE is more of like the library that sits on top of a traditional database, or if it sits on top of like a flat file, or if it's stuff that lives in GPU memory that it queries. Um, hmm. so short answer, no, I don't know exactly. Yeah, there's um out there. I was just I. I remembered that I watched a short video on these on these new vector databases uh, a few weeks ago, and I found the video. There, it mentions a few other ones. There's a Rector DB R E K T O R that seems to be, or maybe it's not open source. Okay, I take that back. Um, they have a GitHub, that's why I thought it was open source, but it's just an empty repository with a README. Um, they have Chroma. There's Chroma. Now Vec Rector is a uh, I think they might have just raised some money. Chroma is an open source embedding database. So I guess um, it's got Langchain integration. I don't know if this is if there's like a for-profit company behind this or if it's just a kind of looks like it is. Yeah, trychroma.com. I have no idea how big they are in comparison to uh, Pinecone. Oh, it, Chroma's $18 million seed round. Let's learn more about that. That's a pretty, uh, pretty big seed round, I got to say. Yeah. What was, um, yeah, investors are like chizzing over this stuff. What, what was the, what was the, um, the Pinecone? Um, what, what amount did Pinecone raise? Yeah. So that was Series B, and they raised $100 million. Okay, so it's an order of magnitude difference there. Well, I mean, this is the seed round, so yeah, yeah, eighteen million. Um, 
why we built Chroma. Chroma was founded on the principle that models can be understood through interpretability of their, okay, this is a little technical. Um, why open source? So it's open source. That's kind of, a, in my book, that's a plus versus, uh, versus Pinecone. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think I confirmed that uh, Pinecone was uh, closed source. It's And it's not only closed source, it's like hosted infrastructure only. So you can't even like take it and post it on in, on prem or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, the more I'm looking at, it, the more I'm I'm seeing similarities between Pinecone and Algolia. Um, mm. you know, site search. Yeah. Similarity, whatnot. Interesting. Algolia is still. I know people use Algolia, but. Um... I still feel like I hear and see Elasticsearch and uh, these other kind of solutions. Because Algolia is closed closed source, right? Yeah, it's it's just uh, you know you pay for I don't know pay pay for volume or something. Hacker News is still using it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean that's the only place. I don't want to say that's the only place, but that's probably the only place I consistently use Algolia search. I'm sure it's good. It's just so hard to, um, it's so hard to pick a closed source solution for that kind of stuff, I think. Yeah. Um, when there's really good open source alternatives. Right. Well, and, but that comes back to, uh, like the DevOps cost of keeping, keeping stuff up, keeping stuff running, keeping stuff patched. Um, True. and then if you're, you know, like that company is constantly innovating. I know open source is constantly innovating, but like, you know, AWS, like I remember day one when they released S3 and like the world went crazy. Like, wow, I can just store objects. Like, this is amazing. And mm -hmm. then they innovated and then they had EC2. Like you can have a, uh, well, you know, a virtual server running in the cloud and um, just spin it up with like two clicks and you can spin up 20 servers. Wow, this is great. So having that relationship with the AWS ecosystem, it ties you into all the innovation that they're doing, which, right. you know, and then you can get consultants who will do the stuff for you. And so, you know, for, for I don't know, for well-funded companies, like going with paid tools sometimes makes a lot of sense. Whereas with startups, like, you know, if you're trying to be scrappy, you know, cobbling together a bunch of open source tools oftentimes can um, keep that expertise in-house where you've got more tools to play with. Like, you know, the ability to just do raw SQL queries on the embeddings um, that, uh, that, that uh, work we've been putting together this week, like that's really cool. If we were doing Pinecone, we wouldn't be able to do that. So, yeah. Yeah, I feel like um, there's definitely a trade-off and, and I do get the sense that, um, uh, I don't know if, yeah, maybe I'm totally wrong, but, but my sense is that like, you see a bit more innovation in the closed source area, especially when it comes to consumer software. But I think you see it in, um, in like developer libraries as well, where it's like the iteration tends to be much faster for closed source. Whereas like with open source, you got collaborators, people are doing it part-time, people are like working on it in their free time. It's like, and, and a lot of times they're like 
just kind of copying whatever is going on in the close in the in the proprietary world but it but it is but i love open source so i don't want anybody to misinterpret what i'm saying it's just it's more difficult i think matt hates that, it uh, he's got a t-shirt that says open source <laughs> with a big line through it speaking Where? of closed source um speaking of closed source datomic i don't know if you're familiar with datomic this is the database written in closure uh yeah yeah i remember uh there was a lunch and learn years ago about datomic yeah super interesting database it's a graph database uh which which are they're really interesting it uses a uh, data log query language which is sort of like a uh, prologue kind of thing not it's not it doesn't it didn't create data log there's other databases that use data log and a different syntax albeit but um idea is the same graph database it does uh, it's got some interesting properties it um it does not so like when you it's like it's i guess it's i would call it an immutable database so when you up you don't really update records i mean there are no records per se there's just uh what they call things are data is stored in like these triplets which is um an identifier an attribute and a value so if you had like a uh, like the idea of a person entity in your domain, you would store, uh, you wanted to store its name, you would store it as a triplet record of the ID of the user, the attribute, which would be name and the value, which might be Matthew. And so if you make changes, all you just add a new triplet and it, and it would just like, it wouldn't overwrite the old triplet. It would just kind of, they would coexist, but each triplet has a timestamp. So you can kind of like figure out what, what the most up-to-date information is anyway, not to get, get into in, in detail about that, but, um, yeah, that is closed source. It's developed by the same people that make closure, um, which is, uh, what, crap, what was the name? I mean, it's Rich Hickey's company. I can't remember the name of it. They were recently acquired by Newbank. Um, shout the name if you know what i'm know who i'm talking about but anyway it's closed so closed source it used to be um it was always like you could use your own i think you you always had the option of like using your own infrastructure so it wasn't like locked into you had to use datomics infrastructure anyway the news this week is that it is now free uh you just have to pay for it pay a license i guess it's, it's free. You just have to pay for it. <laughs> no, you don't have to pay for it. It's well, you have to pay for the infrastructure. If you want to host, if you mm -hmm. want to okay. host it on AWS, you got to pay AWS, but uh, there's no licensing fees or anything anymore. Okay. It's not open source. Did it. Right. It's not free as in um, speech. It's free as in beer, I guess is the saying, <laughs> maybe I'm mixing that up, but, but yeah, you don't have to pay for it anymore, but it's not open source. Okay. So they give you a binary that you run and then you can yeah. support stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So there, and this, the atomic has inspired a whole host of like, kind of, um, I don't want to say copycat databases, but very similar databases. And that's kind of like what I mean by when I said earlier that you see a lot of the innovation in the closed source world and the commercial world, and then the open source kind of like takes those ideas and re-implements them and copies them. Perfect example. There's a ton of like atomic like databases that are not atomic, but they pull and they're 
similar, like 80% similar. There's some differences here and there, but um, yeah, hopefully one day Datomic will be open source. Um, now that Cognitech is the name of the, that's Rich Hickey's company that mm-hmm. created Closure and Datomic. So they were acquired by NewBank and I'm, I'm assuming that uh, NewBank has, you know, once they acquired Cognitech, obviously they acquired Datomic as well. So they use Datomic, but I don't think they have like a a uh, financial interest in keeping the the Datomic service uh, running as like a revenue generating. It's like not their core business, right? They're not in the business of licensing out databases. They just bought Cognitech because they used Atomic Enclosure and they want the they basically want the core team uh, working on the language and the database that they use. So uh, hopefully we'll yeah hopefully New Bank will um, eventually open source it. I think it would only benefit them to grow the uh, community. I know a lot of people would have liked to use Atomic but didn't because it was closed source and it was uh, proprietary, you had to pay for it, that kind of thing. But, <clears throat> but yeah, that's some news for this week. Datomic is free. Um, something else I wanted to uh, talk about. Oh, the Scrap Script. Scrap that's Script. The name of that, <laughs> that's the name of that programming language I found. Uh, I think I saw this. Um, yes, just yesterday, actually. Yeah, it was posted twenty-two hours ago. So this guy started working on this programming language in 2015. And it's got a lot of really uh, interesting ideas. If you want to check it out, it's scrapscript.org. Scrapscript. Scrap is in, uh, scrap is in Scrapyard, right? And um, one of the big ideas is this, um, this idea of content addressable um, references. So everything is content addressable. Uh, any chunk of the language can be replaced with a hash. These chunks are called scraps. Scraps are stored, cached, named, indexed, and global distributed quote unquote scrap yards. So this is kind of like, um, you know, there's this idea, like a lot of programming languages have repositories where you can like upload modules, right? Like Ruby gems and NPM. And those are notorious for, um, I guess, causing like breaking changes in your code if you if you pin it to like a like a major version or a minor version, and somebody just like updates the gem and it breaks something and it's like oh crap, <laughs> like you have no idea like what's going to change, right? right. You just kind of have to trust the uh, semantic versioning system that it works. Uh, with this, it's like you're not pulling in, you're not like referencing a version. You're you're actually like content addressing the content. So if you're like using a function, if you're bringing in a, like an external function, it's like guaranteed not to change because you're like it's content addressable. So um, it's kind of a different way of dealing with dependencies. So on the website, it says no broken dependencies. Every scrap carries its own immutable dependencies. The language itself forms Merkle trees. VCS tools like Git are optional. Every expression is independently version controlled through the global namespace. So there's some big ideas here in this language. Um, Wait, so do they, are they saying that you don't need 
git. Git says git is optional. Version control is optional, right? Version control. I mean, well, sure, we can just like store a file and email it back and forth, but is there a built-in in the language that... Uh... I think so, because it because a little further down, it, you see some examples, um, expression level versioning. So like, usually like in Ruby, for example, you, that you would version the entire module, but in scrap script, <laughs> that's actually kind of hard to say, you can version like individual functions. So let's say like you have a library that you're bringing in uh, or a module that you're bringing in that has a bunch of functions related to, uh, I don't know, parsing PDFs or something. And this new version came out. It has a new function you want to use. Oh, I want to use this new function. But by upgrading, you risk kind of breaking your code because you don't know what else has changed. Maybe in the library, there's a new minor version. Uh, in ScrapScript, it looks like you can just pull in a new version of like a single function from from the library. So you can have like functions that are in an older version and just pull in this newer version, this this one function from a newer version. Um, and you can, it's got uh, an example here, time travel interpreter. So you can um, evaluate it, evaluate some code and you pass it in like some uh, date, like 2005 or something. So I guess there's a built-in sort of versioning system, kind of like it. There's a there's a comment on Hacker News around this. Um, someone said, so it's like a social network with every type of relationship imaginable built into a low-level programming language. And <laughs> the that, author... Yeah responds and says, wow, you totally get my vision. Um, so that's the vision. <coughs> this is yeah, like, that's, um, interesting. I, I have a, I have a I buddy of mine that actually, this thing. I had a buddy of mine that described a similar vision. Actually, it's similar to Unison Lang. I don't know if you've uh, seen that. Uh, no clue now. Yeah, they have this, they, they also, it's sort of like a, a Haskell type uh, ML type language, but they also did the whole like content addressable thing, which is all based around this idea of like, okay, dependencies in software are difficult, right? You can either like use something like NPM where you, uh, you know, you pull in the dependency, like you pin, like you you describe your dependencies, you say which version you want, maybe you want the latest minor version or whatever, you pull it in, everybody that wants to use the project has to pull in those dependencies. You can build the project and include all those dependencies. You can um, build the product and just like make the user ha get those dependencies. Um, but they're, they're all, they all have problems, right? especially when you read about these vulnerabilities that come in through NPM, where it's like, I want to, I want to use left pad on sure. my project because I'm too lazy to type out whatever left pad does. And the maintainer of left pad has a new minor version that uh, runs a Bitcoin miner and, you know, sends it all the Bitcoins to his wallet. So the idea behind the content addressable stuff is 
you know, from the UNICEF website, many dependency conflicts arise from definitions competing for the same name. Since UNICEF references code by hash instead of by name, an entire class of conflicts can be eliminated. Um, so, yeah, you have conflict problems. Um, it's it's really it's a distributed programming problem, I guess. It's interesting. I'd like to play around with it. I mean, that's just one of the ideas of Scrap Script. <laughs> it's got some other um, interesting ideas around data too. Scrap Script. It's the up and coming thing that does stuff. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. I mean, it looks like a just a kind of a hobby project for this guy or gal. I don't know, but um, it's intriguing. A lot of big ideas here. And I'd like to play around with it. First class you know, network requests. The uh, the idea of having um, like how do I phrase it? Uh, easier merge conflict resolution. Um, like that. Honestly, that's my bane in in writing code is getting into a big nasty merge conflict and spending, you know as much time as I spent building the thing, pulling the merge conflict apart. Yeah. Um, and if there's something in there where, uh, you know, there's a AST that is able to do a diff on the two things and, and, uh, you know, or there's like some understanding of like where internal function level dependencies came in and out or, whatnot that could like assist in that process um i don't know that that's the aim of this but i you know that's a pain point in my life yeah it could be i wonder um i wonder how the content addressable references would yeah i wonder how like conf like uh like you said merge conflicts would work with that interesting um, yeah it is interesting well especially considering like git is optional here so like obviously there's a different paradigm of versioning yeah someone uh you know they said well you know it's kind of like and then they listed uh, these three things valtown hyperspace and mm, page which all kind of seem like you know it's like geocities 2.0 um, yeah, exactly. everything's getting edited live in production. HTML is the source of truth. Um, you know, it, it like it. It looks like kind of a fun thing. I don't know that this is enterprise level software tech. Um, more, you know, just a way to like build a, a social web of of sites, um, like in the old days, but maybe with some more modern uh, tooling available. Yeah, there's so um, there are there are issues with dependencies. There are issues with interoperability between applications. Like, um, you know, I have an application written in JavaScript, and I'm sending an API request to uh, to an API that server that's written in Python, and they communicate over JSON, and the JSON is obviously untyped, and you know, there's all kinds of like translation, uh, serialization going on. Um, and like, 
perhaps some naming conflicts or whatever the case, this, the scrap script thing, but I can hate that name. No, the name is fine. Uh, the name is good. It's got some uh, interesting properties, I think, over the wire too, but I uh, haven't really looked into it too much. All valid programs return valid programs. That sounds like mystical and cool, but I'm not sure what it means. Send arbitrary types over the wire. Let the computers let the computers communicate which types they're using. Don't waste engineering hours juggling types and serialization across different machines. So it's all it all kind of comes back to this like distributed computing thing, which is really a, a lot of what we do uh, when we're programming for the web. Is is um, you know we're pulling in dependencies from around the web. We're communicating with other services around the web. We're all sort of operating on like these protocols that are we're just kind of like trusting everybody's using the protocols correctly uh there's the where there's like naming conflicts you know the this idea of names like if you if you have an, a cool idea for a, a package but the name is taken well now you got to come up with another name and you know maybe uh you've got a really awesome package name on npm and you're just squatting it and you're waiting to sell it to somebody I don't know. There, there, there's some there's some problems I think with the existing ecosystem, and it's it's cool to see people experimenting with different ideas here. Most deaf. Well, I think uh, that was my last article for the, for this week. Uh, if you, I don't know if you have anything else you wanted to talk about, but that's it for me. Um. Yeah, nothing, nothing entirely noteworthy. Um, just kind of this, you know, maybe, maybe a piece of optimism around AI. Um, and, and this could have something to do with the fact I'm not a data scientist. I, I, I you know, I just used, uh, you know, I spent the week learning how to get embeddings working and how to tweak them and how to look at, at similarities and. Uh, you know, there's like this giant hype train that AI is going to like software ate the world. AI is going to eat people. Yeah. Um, and coming out of this, like it's, uh, I don't know. I was more on like the, okay, crap. Am I going to have a job in two years train? Right. And, yeah. Um, the more I look at it, like, you know, it's still possible that someone makes some like crazy quantum breakthrough and uh, get, you know, 10 million parameters uh, available and you can just push a code base in and have it automatically, you know, write everything. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a little optimistic that the stuff that we do, the levels that we think about, like, you know, AI is not there yet. There's some serious, like, physical um, limits in terms of like you need like exabytes of RAM to, to do this stuff. Um, like I'm feeling, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling a little more secure. I'm feeling like, yeah, I might be working on one of DHH's kerosene lamps. Um, but like electricity, it's it's not coming online like next week. Um, it's not coming online next year. I think it's a ways out. Yeah, I, I hear you. I was um, 
oh, I was using GP chat GPT for something this week, or maybe it was last week trying to like, okay, I'm like, I'm stumped. I'm going to get on chat GPT. Maybe it'll know what, what to do. Really didn't have a clue. I mean, it would, it would give me answers that I was like, no, this, this is not applicable, ap- applicable for X, Y, Z reason. And then it was like, oh, I'm sorry. And then it would just like, give me some bullshit. <laughs> oh, I remember what it was. It was, um, yeah, it, it's things that I deal with all the time. For example, um, on, on, on iOS, right? When you're developing an app, um, you can have web views and it embeds a Safari web view and you can you can inspect that web view just like you can inspect pages on Safari, but you have to hook your phone up and open Safari and go through the debug menu and stuff. Anyway, it wasn't working. And I was like, why the hell is it not? You know, it was just working last week. Why is it not working now? I'll ask ChatGPT. And it was like, it was giving me answers and like making up system settings that like weren't in the phone <laughs> like, that doesn't exist and he's like oh i'm sorry and then would like make up some other settings and i'm like this is a waste of time so eventually you know i figured out the problem it was uh you know a new ios update that disables it by default and you have to like update your code and mm. it's like those are the kind of troubleshooting and debugging problems that take up most of my time i think as a programmer and Chat GPT is just completely useless in those scenarios most of the time, where it's like I'm I'm integrating different services, I'm relying on third party APIs, and and it's just like, and this was something that there was an update that happened recently, so it's not even in ChatGPT's corpus of knowledge really. Um, so yeah, anyway, I'm with you. Just all that to say that uh, I can relate. I think. I think yeah. Uh... You know, the, the, the thing that is missing is, is it's, you know, it's human-like in a lot of ways, you know, it like, it understands grammar, it can converse, I guess you could, you could phrase it as, but it doesn't learn. Like if you tell it like, no, you're bad, bad dog, this is what you should do. Yeah. I, I just, I don't get the sense that it is learning and right. until it's until it's something that like I can actually, like, I feel like I'm investing into a relationship and that is, is, um, you know, being returned back to me. Like, I don't want to talk to Siri cause Siri's an idiot. Um, <laughs> right. You know, it, it just, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, somebody's going to, you know, eventually, eventually get on it and, and get it, you know, slowly better and better. But that like uncanny valley of, Hey, I'm not just wasting my time speaking in the ether. Um, you know, I think it's, I think that's going to be a stale taste. It, I think it's already a stale taste with people who use Siri. Um, yeah. So even if the tech's out there, like it's going to take like a full generational shift for, for people to, uh, you know, really embrace it and not, you know, hate the thing in the process. Yeah. Yeah. That could take up to like three months, probably. Christ. Um, all right. Well, with that positive note, I think that's a good, good place to end it. We're a little over, but um, thanks for tuning in. Take care, y'all.